Hello, if I could have your attention, sorry to interrupt your lunch. Um, we heard earlier some of the um, some of the threats to freedom from uh, both sides of politics. We know those threats are many and grave in nature and extent. Uh, and I can assure you that all of us at Cato are more than cognizant of the new and different challenges right, to Cato's mission from the new-ish administration. Indeed, you'd think it would be obvious to most people that uh, full-throated advocates for freedom are needed more than ever. But in case it is not obvious, then our next speaker will make it clear. Uh, liberty has, of course, been tested many times before. Indeed, one might say that liberty is in constant peril uh, from the forces of statism and collectivism. And establishing a steadfast, reliable, principled voice for libertarian thought in Washington, D.C. was part of the original uh, ethos for the establishment of Cato for just that very reason. Uh, David Bowes, uh, as he said this morning, is our longest-running employee. He has been at Cato for almost the entirety of its 45-year history and deserves much of the credit for what Cato represents, uh, for its reputation for uh, serious and quality scholarship. Uh, indeed, P.J. O'Rourke, in the acknowledgement section of one of his books many years ago, uh, once said that even though Ed Crane at the time was president of Cato, he said, quote, David Bowes does all the work. David is steadfastly committed to our mission and to making sure we pursue it with principle and according to the highest standards of scholarship and tone. It's difficult to think of anyone whose opinion I trust more. If I want to know what to think, I ask David Bowes, and so should you. David. Thank you, Sally. I should have Sally do all my introductions. Uh, my hearing's not as good as it used to be, and I thought for a minute she said we were confronting threats to liberty from Satanism. Uh, then I realized, of course, she said statism. That's what we always complain about. Um, so I want to talk to you about why we need a movement for freedom. Why do we come to events like this? And one of the reasons we come to events like this is we're just so glad to be seeing friends again. Um, we went a long time without seeing any friends. So that's one reason. But the more fundamental reason is we need this movement. We come to places like this because we love freedom. And, you know, a few years ago, a younger colleague of mine said, Cato talks a lot about the threats to freedom and the bad policies, but they never talk about freedom. So I said, okay, well, maybe we should try talking about what is freedom a little more. Freedom is a big idea. It's been developed by great thinkers over many years. But it's also something that people feel in their bones. Every one of us knows what it meant to cross through the Berlin Wall from unfreedom to freedom. We measure freedom in reports like the Human Freedom Index and Freedom in the 50 States. There was a new edition of Freedom in the 50 States published just yesterday. If you're on the Cato email list, I must inform you that Illinois did not do very well. 
But those measurements don't capture what it means to take freedom away from an individual. The individuals who lose their freedom, they know what it means. We know the names of some of the people who have felt the loss of their freedom deeply. Nathan Hale, Frederick Douglass, Sophie Scholl, Rosa Parks, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. But we work for the freedom of people whose names we may not know because we do know the centrality of freedom in our lives. And we should remember, as we're complaining about the loss of liberty, that much of our life, most of our life, is free in our modern world. We make thousands of choices every day, have dozens, hundreds, even thousands of interactions with other people during the week, the month, and we make all those choices and, and choose those interactions without any central direction. Freedom gives meaning to our lives. It allows us to define our own meaning, to define what's important to us. Freedom means respecting the moral autonomy of each individual, seeing each person as the owner of his or her own life, free to make the important decisions about her own life, to think to speak, to write, to create, to marry, to eat and drink and smoke, to associate with others as we choose. Freedom is the foundation of our ability to construct our lives as we see fit, and it has good consequences for society. Freedom helps to bring about social harmony. A lot of people don't get this. They think the way you have social harmony is to have one religion, one king, one unifying idea, one purpose for the country. Um, Hillary Clinton talked about a nation needs a purpose. No, a nation doesn't need a purpose other than its purpose is to enable all its citizens to pursue their purposes. We have less conflict within our society when we have fewer specific rules about how we should live, about religion or dress or lifestyle or class and caste or schools. We have, more, we have more social harmony when the schools are not run by politicians so that we have to make one decision. Will we have sex education? Will we not have sex education? Will we teach critical race theory? Will we not teach critical race theory? If we had a freer network of schools with parents able to choose the schools that best met their children's needs, we'd have fewer public, political, polarizing conflicts about what the schools do. And freedom also leads to economic growth and abundance. We know that in a free economy, people have incentives to in invent, innovate, and produce more goods and services for the whole society. And that system, that system of freedom of enterprise, took us from backbreaking labor and short lives to the abundance we see around us. As Deirdre McCloskey and Steven Pinker and Cato's website, humanprogress.org, are always reminding us. What is it that changed the world? What happened about 300 years ago to transform our world from 10,000 years of subsistence living to steady progress? Scholars disagree on the details, but it certainly includes freedom. The opportunity, <coughs> the, 
the opportunity to use our talents and to cooperate with others to create and produce with the help of a few simple institutions that protect our rights. And the ideas, the institutions, and the innovation were interconnected. One way to look at it is that liberalism came into the world. And it's important to remember that we are liberals. We stand in a long line of people who challenge the old order, the order of power and status, of caste and class, and developed a new way of thinking about the world. An understanding that, you know the words, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. We are the heirs of John Locke, Adam Smith, Mary Wollstonecraft, John Stuart Mill, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, Hayek and Rand and Friedman. Liberals changed the world after millennia of backbreaking labor and short lives as the noted scholar Karl Marx recognized the bourgeoisie during its rule of scarce 100 years, remember he's writing about 1848, during its rule of scarce 100 years has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered? Marx up to that point understood it was liberalism. When he says the bourgeoisie, he means the world created by liberalism that generated this incredible increase in wealth and the standard of living. Liberals built the modern world of human rights, open markets, and constant progress. And as new challenges to freedom and progress arose, liberals, classical liberals we came to call them, turned to confront them. They fought socialism, fascism, military dictatorship, theocracy, apartheid. And whether those challenges were said to come from right or left, they all sought to replace the rule of law with the rule of some men over others. And you know, people rarely think of libertarians as moderates, but my former colleague Brink Lindsay wrote about a libertarian center in American politics a decade ago. As the two parties become more polarized, usually in the wrong ways, Democrats are becoming more tax and transfer, not more civil libertarian, and Republicans these days are becoming more nationalist and protectionist, not more free market. Libertarians may well find themselves in a new center of people who are uncomfortable with both extremes. Around the world, with left-wing autocrats and ethnic nationalist autocrats vying for power, classical liberals defend this broad center of peaceful and productive people in a society of liberty under law. And part of our job is to give those peaceful and productive people a clear philosophy and a policy agenda. When I was doing interviews about my book, The Libertarian Mind, I was often asked, you know, what is libertarianism? And I would say, libertarianism is the idea that adult individuals have the right and the responsibility to make the important decisions about their own lives. 
And the libertarian complaint is when government seeks to limit our ability to make those important decisions. <clears throat> Some of you remember a bestseller called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And I like to say that you learn the fundamentals of libertarianism, the fundamentals of freedom, and the fundamentals of civilization in kindergarten. What are they? Don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. Follow those rules and you can create civilization. But those are not the rules they live by in Washington. And that's part of why we're here today. Jefferson warned us that the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. In so many ways, we find that power tends to flow from the people to government, from state and local governments to the federal government, and from Congress to the executive. Smokey the Bear's rules, I'm not sure you see that on TV anymore, but when I was a kid, you saw Smokey Bear's rules all the time. Smokey the Bear's rules for fire safety were keep it small, keep it in a confined area, and keep an eye on it. Well, those are our rules, too. We have a constitution to keep the government small. Keep it in a confined area. That's what Article 1, Section 8 does. It says gover federal government only has these powers. Keep an eye on it. Well, that's what we do. How do we do that? What do we do? I'm not going to give you a list of books and studies and conferences and seminars and TV appearances and congressional testimony. You can find all of that on our website and in our newsletters and so on. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that aren't so obvious. Uh, one of those is we give academics a platform to reach a broader audience. Earl Ravenel was a scholar of international relations, laboring in obscurity. He was in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., but there aren't many people who go to Georgetown to learn how to not run the rest of the world, and that was what he was trying to teach people. We made him a Cato scholar. We created a platform in which he could publicize his books, write op-eds for the newspapers, appear on radio, and really changed the way people thought in Washington about foreign policy. Didn't necessarily change what they did, but they were at least better informed about the non-interventionist alternative. Richard Epstein was an obscure professor in the middle of the country in a town called Chicago, writing in law journals as a legal scholar. We, he, and then he published a book called Takings, which basically argued that almost everything the federal government does is not authorized in the Constitution. And we said that needs a bigger hearing than law professors. And so we brought him to Washington, and we set up a luncheon, and we invited some prominent journalists and some prominent Washington legal analysts. And I think that started him on a greater public uh, persona, a greater public impact, including within law schools and within the judiciary. More recently, George Selgin, we hired him out of the University of Georgia. Um, within a couple of years at Cato, he's being touted by a top Wall Street Journal columnist for a seat on the Federal Reserve Board. So that's the kind of platform that we've been able to uh, do. And we've created this platform that automatically makes our own scholars participants in the national policy debate. People like Emily Eakins, Alex Narasta, Jennifer Schulp, Scott Linscombe, 
Um, they had to do the work, but we have a platform that helps them get attention for it. We get libertarian ideas into the national media. Hundreds of citations in major newspapers every day. On staff, we get an email daily with dozens of these media mentions. Literally not a day goes by that Cato scholars aren't reaching large audiences through newspapers, television, YouTube, and so on. And sometimes we get libertarian ideas into the media without any credit for it. Journalists call us. We offer tips on stories to journalists that we've worked with. Um, we write op-eds, and then the op-eds don't get published, but we find some of those ideas end up being in the newspaper's own editorials, or editorial writers call us and ask us to walk them through an issue or a policy idea. We may not get cited in the editorial, but we know that we had an influence in making that change. Um, Reuters, the news service, won a Pulitzer Prize just recently for its series on qualified immunity, which started with a conversation with Cato scholars. We give people the courage to do what they know is right. In this case, I'm saying it's not that we persuaded people of the idea, it's that we inspired them to feel they could talk about it when they were in a position where maybe they didn't feel they could. And I think two very good examples of that from about 20 years ago were Mayor Kurt Schmoke of Baltimore and Governor Gary Johnson of New Mexico, who I'm sure had both noticed the failure of drug prohibition on their own. They were intelligent people, skilled public officials. Kurt Schmoke had been a uh, Rhodes Scholar. He didn't need us to tell him, oh, by the way, the war on drugs isn't working when he became mayor. But I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that said the war on drugs isn't working, and six weeks later, Mayor Schmoke gave a speech to the U.S. Conference of Mayors in which he said that. I don't think I persuaded him in my 700 words. I do think that helped him decide it was okay to go public with that. And I know the same thing was true with Governor Gary Johnson, who talked to us at Cato about the war on drugs before he announced that he wanted to reform the drug war. And just recently, a couple of senior staffers on the House Judiciary Committee, this is the sort of thing Mark Calabria was talking about, had known about the problem of qualified immunity, but they never made it a priority because it just seemed too obscure and too complicated to take on without any real intellectual or institutional backing. But when Cato came into the issue and spent time with those staffers, they felt they had the resources they needed to move and the chair of the committee that they worked on emerged as a leading advocate for reform. Again, our work was behind the scenes, but it put this issue in the spotlight for a House committee chairman. We put big ideas on the table, ideas that wouldn't be there if we weren't talking about it. One of those from Epstein was the idea of enumerated powers that the Constitution only gives the federal government certain powers. And if it's not in there, the federal government can't do it. They may do it, but they don't have the legal authority to do it. And that has become a much better understood, widely adopted position among legal scholars and judges, not adopted widely enough, but more than it was. The war on drugs, definitely an issue that we put on the table for an ongoing national debate. Health savings accounts, 
25 years ago this year, we talked about it before that, 25 years ago it got into a bill that passed Congress and now millions of Americans have access to health savings accounts, which if they were more widely adopted would be a very good way of changing the way healthcare is delivered and in particular bringing down the costs of healthcare because right now Almost none of us are real customers when we go to a doctor or a hospital. We don't ask how much it costs because we're not really paying for it. If everybody in America knew what it cost, when, or at least asked what it would cost when they went to a doctor, that would make a difference. Reining in presidential war powers. Cato has clearly put that on the, the table, and you've had both Republican and Democratic senators finally talking about the fact that the president alone should not be able to take the country to war. It's in the Constitution he can't do that. We're getting people at least to talk about it. And Social Security reform. We started writing about that around 1978, and we put on the table the idea that this system wasn't perfect, that it would eventually end in insolvency, that there's something we can do about it, something that would be better than the system that exists. And the number one way the Cato Institute helps change the world, creating a presence for libertarian ideas in Washington and in the national debate. And we try not to brag, and I would never say this publicly, but among friends, I feel confident without Cato, there would be no major consistent voice on behalf of individual liberty and limited government in the national media. And we're very proud that that's an accomplishment we've had in the past 40 years. And in that way, we are renewing the culture of liberty that runs very deep in America. Two very distinguished scholars who don't much like the culture of liberty complained a few years ago that libertarian ideas are astonishingly widespread in American culture, unquote. And they're right. These ideas I know when you talk to your friends, you don't sense that they're really very libertarian, but on the broadest issues, the importance of the Bill of Rights, the understanding that the government is based on consent of the governed, the benefits of the system of free enterprise, there's broad support for those ideas in America, which is why we score very well on ratings like the Human Freedom Index, just not as well as we could. But they're right that there is this culture. At meetings and seminars around Washington, in political cartoons, in newspaper columns and books, Cato is often singled out as the focus and voice of that American heritage of liberty. There are millions, tens of millions of Americans who think government is too much involved in our personal and economic lives. And we're not reaching enough of them. We need to find more of them, rally them, push them, and keep them out of the culture keep them out of the clutches of the culture warriors on both sides of the aisle culture warriors who seek only to demonize and polarize us cato is about ideas the ideas of peace liberty dignity tolerance human rights property rights open markets and limited constitutional government and we do the work we do because we care about the lives of the people that are affected by government that exceeds its proper bounds. And we also remember that the difficulties we face in getting our message out are nothing like those our friends in other countries face. What do I mean? Who do I mean? People like Yang Zili, 
who spent eight years in a Chinese jail for reading Hayek and writing about the rule of law. Or Karima Mare, who spent four years in an Egyptian jail for blogging about the oppression of women and Christians. One of the really awful things I noticed in the story of Karima Mare was he was sentenced to one year in prison as part of that prison term for writing that the president of Egypt was a dictator. That's a good way to convince people you're not a dictator. Lock them in jail when they say you are. And an American businessman I can't name because he's forbidden by an SEC gag order to tell the world how he was treated by the regulatory state. But we don't worry just about those who suffer for exercising their right to free speech. We speak for all those who suffer under the burdens of government. People like Shelley Parker, who had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to win the right to own a gun to protect herself in a dangerous D.C. neighborhood. Or Suzette Kilo, whose home was taken from her by a partnership between big business and big government. Or Eric Garner, choked to death on a street in Brooklyn for selling loose cigarettes on the street and all the elderly folks trying to get by on Social Security because they weren't allowed to invest their retirement savings in real wealth. And they remind us of what the founders told us, that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And in this day and age, when we don't intend to take up arms in defense of freedom, eternal vigilance is exercised by all the Americans who devote their time and money and effort to defending and expanding freedom. And I know sometimes people wonder if what think tanks do is important. Politics, they say, that's where the action is. You should get out and do things. Politics has its place. I, I'm a political junkie. I follow politics the way other people follow Major League Baseball statistics. Um, my teams lose all the time. I won't name any teams that I would compare that to, but, um, but I'm interested in politics. Politics has its place. But as my friend Joe Lehman of the Mackinac Center wrote a few years ago, when lawmakers change public policy to favor liberty, they are only taking the final step in a long march. Watching what lawmakers accomplish in the legislature is like watching a football game through a hole in the fence that only lets you see the goal line. Up the field and further away from the goal line glory is where ideas begin their march toward becoming public policy. And those ideas are developed and communicated by think tanks. And that's why we're here in our Washington office and in this room today. The founders pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the cause of American freedom. We don't have to do that, but we do have to do what we do. Because freedom isn't free. It must be defended in every generation. And that's why you are a hero of the ongoing American Revolution because these institutions can't survive with your without your help. In the heart of this great enterprising city, hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, or we might say these days, allocator of capital for the world, there's a statue, I'm sure you've seen it, of George Washington flanked by Robert Morris and Haim Solomon, the two great funders of the American Revolution. And that statue should be the emblem of the freedom movement because without financial support, visionaries and leaders and institutions can't achieve much. 
So my colleagues and I thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being part of what we do. And we're going to ask you to keep doing it because there's never been a golden age of liberty and there never will be. There will always be people who want to live their lives in peace and there will always be people who want to exploit them or impose their ideas on others. There will always be a conflict between liberty and power. And that's why we'll always need a movement for freedom. We can't count on politicians to protect freedom. It's up to us. And that's why we're here. Thank you. And I think we have a little time, and I'm happy to take questions. I'm a great admirer of Cato, and um, I, I know your comments have been very, very hopeful. But looking out at the, the way things are run in my state, here in Illinois, and in the country, it seems that the tide is running against us. Government gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It regulates more and more and more. Uh, it's, it's discouraging, and uh, that's the way I look at things, unfortunately. It is discouraging, and I understand that perspective, and I'm very sympathetic to it, and my colleagues would tell you I've often got cynical or discouraging things to say in the office. But I try to remember that that's not the whole story. It's absolutely true that our government and most democratic governments are spending more and more all the time. Although government spending as a percentage of GDP has not gone up that much, except um, with the financial crisis of 2008 and the pandemic, there have been big jumps in government spending as percentage of GDP. It came down a bit again after the financial crisis. It has not yet come down after the pandemic, which is not exactly over, but there is some concern that the government felt liberated, first because we had a Republican president who spent $2.9 trillion on a pandemic relief bill and then another $1.2 trillion within the same year. And so then a Democratic president comes in and he's no longer afraid of the word trillion. He can, he can introduce trillion dollar bills and we've sort of gotten used to it. So on government spending, it's absolutely true. On regulation, there's been a great deal of new regulation. On the other hand, this goes back a few years, but I used to hear the same perspective at this time. There was a wave of deregulation in the United States um, in a, from like 1978 to the mid-1980s, transportation deregulation, um, financial deregulation, telecom deregulation. Remember? when you had to call the phone company to get a phone company, uh, to get a phone installed in your house, and you might have to wait a bit, and it was black, and the great innovation they bragged about was the princess phone. We don't live in that world anymore. And why is that? Because we had some deregulation of the telecom industry. Technological advances as well, greater wealth, which is a product of a functioning free enterprise system, but we did have a wave of deregulation there. Um, we deregulated energy prices, and they've remained mostly deregulated. And every time oil, every time gas prices start to go up, people start saying, "Oh, we need an investigation of the oil industry." Um, and why doesn't the president bring back? And, and it's the greed of the uh, energy companies. Elizabeth Warren's been all over 
Twitter lately with these claims about the greed of the oil companies, and then it was the greed of big pharma, and Thanksgiving week, it was literally the greed of big poultry. That's why your turkey is more expensive, because the big turkey monopolists are raising the price. And some of my friends started asking on Twitter, if it's oil company greed that is causing gasoline prices to go up right now, was it out of the goodness of the oil company's heart that they went down for a couple of years before this year? Um, and then somebody did a chart of gasoline prices. They go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. Um, and by the way, you want to adjust that for inflation because yes, you can remember, many of you can remember when you paid 50 cents a gas for for 50 cents a gallon for gasoline. But you can also remember that you made $17,000 in a good middle-class salary at the time. So you have to adjust for inflation. But they did a chart, and they show oil prices go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. And they circled each direction and said, oil companies greedy, oil companies generous. Oil companies greedy, oil companies generous. But we do have basically deregulated energy prices, and that has been a great boon for the economy. And we do also want to think about things that we may not think about as advances for freedom. If we look back and say, when, you know, when, we were, when were we more free? Were we more free when women were sort of excluded from political and economic life? Were we more free when black people were excluded from the economy? When gay people were excluded from normal social, political, and economic life? All of those changes some of them may have gone too far in some ways, but all of those changes have been a great advance for literally a majority of the country, since women are a majority of the country. Um, so we want to think about those things, too. For all our complaints about freedom of speech right now, speech is actually more free in the United States than it's ever been before. The Supreme Court has swept away all kinds of restrictions on freedom of speech. And a lot of these liberties have come from the courts, which is one reason we have a Center for Constitutional Studies that focuses on helping the judiciary to understand its role in protecting American liberty and limited government. So I don't want to say there isn't a lot to fight about, but I think there's more progress going on. Um, it's not as clear. There's a great book called The Road to Serfdom. But that's not the name of our world. We are not on the road to serfdom. We are in a fight for liberty. And as I said in my speech, there's never been a golden age of liberty. Pick any time in American history, and I'll tell you what was so illiberal about that time. And there's never going to be a golden age of liberty. So we're going to have to keep on fighting. I would also just point out that I'm talking here mostly about the United States. But if you look at the world, and if you look at the ratings in the Economic Freedom of the World Index or the Human Freedom Index, you see that the world as a whole has gotten more free in my time at Cato, in my lifetime, in your lifetime. Now, a lot of that is because China went from being a totally communist totalitarian country to being a semi-free economy still run by the Communist Party, so it ain't nirvana. Yeah, it's not Denmark or the United States, but it got a lot better. Same thing is true in Russia, India. Uh, even in Africa, there have been some deregulations and some limitations on government. So 
Worldwide, we are seeing small, steady movements in the direction of freedom and human rights. In the United States, it's definitely a closer issue, and that's why we're here to fight about it. What is Cato's uh, stance or opinion on the long-term effects of modern monetary theory and negative interest rates? Well, we've been pretty critical of monetary policy for a long time. Um, one of the early things we did was start an annual monetary conference, and that was back when, you remember, there was a, a significant inflation in the late 1970s, and that's when we got into that field. Modern monetary theory is a new example, a new argument, and it sort of reminds me of the rise of Keynesianism in the 1930s. Keynes had this idea that, among other things, it would make sense for government to run deficits during recessions and run surpluses during good times. And politicians said, hey, that's a great idea. Look, we have this book, John Maynard Keynes. He says we should be running deficits. They forgot the part that when the emergency is over, then you run surpluses for a while. They, were, they just felt empowered by the, the argument that they could run deficits. And modern monetary theory is like that. It just sort of gives the, it, it would give, it has not been adopted or anything, it would give the government a blank check to just create money at the Federal Reserve. And as Milton Friedman used to say, um, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And so the reason we had a bout of inflation in the 1970s, the reason we may be having a bout of inflation now, although I should say among Cato scholars, there are differences of opinion. We're seeing rising prices right now. Is that because there's monetary inflation, which is what we normally expect causes uh, rising prices, or is it a result of the pandemic and the lockdowns and the supply chain interruptions? And will it turn out that this was a period of rising prices, which we all know happens with particular goods? If there's a freeze in Florida, the price of orange juice goes up. And if you put a tariff on Chinese textiles, the price of textiles will go up in the United States. So how much of today's rising prices are a result of sort of exogenous factors like the pandemic, and how much is a result of monetary action? And we're going to debate that for a while, I'm sure. But you're right, modern monetary theory would be another total blank check for the Federal Reserve and therefore the government. The government would say, we can spend $3 trillion, we can spend $6 trillion because we have this theory that there's no problem with the Fed creating enough money to do it. So it's a real problem. It's a very bad idea. I don't know that that bad idea is a particularly influential idea on policy at this point, but scholars are taking it apart, rebutting it, trying to make sure policymakers do not decide this is in fact a costless idea. Hi. So, especially coming from Illinois, I'm pretty sure we're all from Illinois. Um, in the age of lockdowns and um, restriction of the free movement of people, um, it seems that a lot of elected policy leaders are very enthusiastically supporting that. Not only that, the constituents that elect them into office. What do you think that means for the future of liberty and freedom in the United States? I think it's a big problem, and one of the problems is 
that when emergencies happen, whether that's a war or a depression or a pandemic or a crime wave, lots of things like that, people want something to be done. And as the old line from Yes Minister said, something must be done, this is something, therefore this must be done. Um, somebody puts an idea on the table, hey, let's spend $3 trillion to protect people from the pandemic, let's lock down. When the pandemic began, um, private enterprises started shutting down before the government shut anything down. So there was real fear of the coronavirus. Cato stopped going to the office. Um, I'm a native Kentuckian, so when they shut down the Kentucky Derby and March Madness, I knew to take this seriously. Um, but lots of other things were shutting down before governors started uh, issuing lockdown orders. And one of the things that we said in a statement right at the beginning of the pandemic was emergencies may require emergency measures, but it's important to remember that when the emergency is over, the emergency measures must end. And that's always a challenge. Robert Hicks wrote a book called Crisis in Leviathan. And one of the takeaway messages in there is how did government grow bigger than it used to be? Was it like this? And he said, no, it wasn't like that. It's not, it didn't grow by 1% a year. It grew during wars and depressions and panics. And the government would get bigger during the Civil War, and then it would go back, but not as far. And bigger during World War I, and then it would go back, but not as far. Lots of bad things happened around World War I, like the income tax and uh, drug prohibition um, and alcohol prohibition. So... Now we have more emergencies, and it's why politicians throughout my adult life have been talking about wars that aren't really wars, like the energy crisis and the war on drugs and the war on poverty, because everybody knows that only government can deal with a war. So we need to push back against these emergencies. We need to try to get the government to re remove the emergency powers it already has under previous emergency orders that gives them power to do all sorts of things, um, including, as Scott was talking about, they could raise tariffs uh, without any discussion in Congress, without a vote of Congress, because we had given the president that authority because in the event of an emergency or national security, he might have to do something, raise tariffs, lower tariffs, whatever. Turns out we gave the president a lot of arbitrary power with these emergency orders. Um, every time one of these things happens, though, it can have two effects. It can tick people off, make them more concerned about their lost liberty, and we certainly saw that after the financial crisis. We saw the rise of a Tea Party complaining about government trying to take over our economy and take over healthcare sort of right at the same time. And we've seen a lot of pushback on lockdowns and school closings and so on. Um, and we also have seen not as big sweeping deregulation as we had around 1980, but a fair number of regulations being waived and suspended when it was obvious that they were impeding responses to the pandemic. And somebody, I think maybe it was CEI, created a hashtag on Twitter called um, hashtag never needed. And so all of these regulations, we wanted to say, you know, if we don't need it because it's preventing us from getting health care during a pandemic, maybe we never needed that rule. Rules against telemedicine, rules against doctors practicing medicine in a state they weren't licensed in, 
Who cares if your doctor is licensed in Wisconsin and not Illinois? Um, so crises can result in government getting smaller, government getting less restrictive. But more often, it's the people, because Washington is full of people with plans for you. And when 9-11 happened, the Patriot Act, how did they write the Patriot Act so fast? Because they had all those things in a box of stuff the law enforcement system, the national surveillance bureaucracy wanted to do that they knew they could never get through Congress. And then 9-11 happened, and it was at least partly it looks like an intelligence failure. Then we need more intelligence. That means we need more surveillance. Here, we have a stack of ideas on that. It was all thrown together in the Patriot Act. And then in the financial crisis, and President Obama came in, and he says, we have to stimulate the economy. I have a stimulus bill. And I remember one of my friends calling it the Democrats' Patriot Act because it's everything they had been wishing they could do for years and years, federal child care, uh, environmental regulations, environmental spending, infrastructure, all these things, but they knew they couldn't get through Congress, which still has some sensitivity to the deficit and the size of government. And so they throw it all into a trillion-dollar stimulus bill, and they can get it passed. That's one of the problems with emergencies, that things can, can be done because people want something to be done, and here's a guy with a plan. Um, it, can be, it can get much worse in some countries. We have the term, the man on a white horse. The country is in trouble, and a man on a white horse rides in. Now, if you're lucky, the man on the white horse is George Washington, and he establishes a republic. More often, he's Mussolini, and he establishes fascism. So that's why it's in our minds, the man on the white horse. That's a bad thing. And when you hear President Trump say, I alone can fix it, or when you hear President Clinton say, if you've got a problem, I've got a program, you should think about the man in the white horse and say, no, 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 let's, let's not go that way. And now, speaking of controls and regulations, I see Sally James walking up. So let me thank you all for coming. Thank you for your support, and have a wonderful rest of the day.